Welcome to West Virginia Beer Roads, a podcast all about beer from a West Virginia perspective. I'm Aaron McCoy here with my podcast partner, Charles Bakway. Thank you, Aaron. I'd been hearing about this little distillery way up in the high mountains of West Virginia that made whiskey out of local craft beer. It might have been Cindy Robison from Stumptown Ales in Davis who first told me about the Still Hollow Spirits distillery a few years back. Anyway, I recently saw a social media post about that distillery and its recent release of a whiskey made with beer supplied by Big Timber Brewing. I wanted to dig into this story of collaboration between small brewery and small distillery, so Aaron and I went to Elkins and sat down with Matt and Ashley Kwasniewski, the owners of Big Timber Brewing, to first get their side of the story. I asked Matt how he got involved with Athey Lutz and Still Hollow Spirits. How did you get involved with the Still Hollow Spirits? Um, I heard about them starting a distillery in Whitmer, which kind of blew my mind because it's not where you'd expect. I thought there might be a distillery up there, but probably not one that <laughs> the TTV knows about. But... Uh, <laughs> What did you initially think of the idea as a collaboration with Still Hollow? It wasn't anything planned, but um, it was if they had barrels that they no longer had use of, we'd age beer in them and pick up some of the, the subtle flavors from the previous whiskey in them. And if we had any beer that was not up to spec that they could distill off and age in whiskey, they could use that alcohol. So so when did you call him and tell him you had a batch of beer that he could uh, use as his feedstock? So we had a batch of double bit that fermented drier than what we were expecting. It finished a few points below gravity to what it normally did. And that kind of was like a uh-oh moment and then whenever we did initial sensory we realized this was not double bit it was something else yeah but that higher alcohol was good for the distiller <laughs> yeah yeah so we don't know if it was a diastaticus infection or if we pitched stressed yeast or under pitched yeast um, but it, it had some some off flavors in it that were not uh, beholden to what double bit normally is. So. Yeah, so when a brewer has beer that comes out different from what they imagine, and that's not that uncommon at commercial breweries around the country, I hear about that regularly, that mm-hmm. you often just have to dump that batch. And this seems like maybe you could call uh, Still Hollow and, and work out something with them? Yeah, because we could put it down in the drain, but then it goes to the septic tr- sewage treatment plant and, um, you know, they're more for processing sewage than al- yeah. alcohol, so <laughs> I think it, it benefits a lot more people. If uh, so, I talked to Athey, and he said, "Sure, we'll take it." And um, he came down in his truck, took the bad beer away, and made good whiskey from it. So, <laughs> so about how much, uh, how many gallons of product did he did he take from you? It was a thirty barrel batch, and he took most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about a thousand gallons. So yeah, and he's about uh, what. 20, 30 miles away from here, something like that, I guess. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. So he, he brought down some big tanks on the truck and just hauled it back. Yeah, yeah, big tote for yeah. carrying water. And yeah, I think he made four trips on the initial batch. To get it all. Yeah. Okay, so Aaron and I wrapped things up with Matt and Ashley at Big Timber Brewing and headed out to Still Hollow Spirits to find out what this little farm distillery was all about.
We made our way back into the high mountains about a half hour's drive east of Elkins to find the distillery. Leaving the main highway and following GPS, we drove down a little winding road which led from the top of Rich Mountain to the little settlement of Job, West Virginia, which sits along the dry fork of Cheat River. There, just about 100 yards up a country lane, we spotted the sign for Still Hollow Spirits. We parked the car and were met by Athey Lutz, who along with his wife Maggie own and operate this little distillery. We sat down with Athey surrounded by distillery equipment and whiskey barrels. We knew that he had made whiskey first with a beer from Stumptown Ales and later made the one with Big Timber and we wanted to hear his whole story. Aaron started off our questions. Well, when did you first get the idea that you'd like to make whiskey from local craft beer? So that is a very unique product and a process that I honestly had never heard of or thought of when I was opening this business. And it stemmed organically from having friends in the brewing industry. have to give a lot of shout out to the brewers that have built the craft beer industry here in West Virginia. I think Mountain State Brewing in Thomas was just up the road from me and they were one of the first in the state. Also been friends with the folks that opened Stumptown, uh, people at Big Timber. And so seeing the success and the growth of the craft brewing industry was certainly something that inspired us to think that craft distilling was a viable option in this area. And it happens that one of my good friends, Jeff Melnick, used to be the head brewer at Stumptown. Well, let's get into that. Explain how the project with Stumptown Ells originated. So Jeff Melnick was helping me hook up the plumbing, electric, and the gas for my stills here when we were first opening. He mentioned that, hey, have you ever thought of distilling beer? I said, no. He said, well, uh, talk to John, (laughs) see if you can get some beer, you know, when you're ready. And so that's really how the collaboration was born was through our friendship with Stumptown. Uh, It was their idea that you know, our beer has alcohol in it. You should see what happens if you distill it. And so we contacted them once we had run some corn whiskey and got ourselves off the ground and said, you know, let's try that. Yeah. So I wonder if you could just take us through that process that you first used to make the uh, beer out of, I mean, excuse me, to make the whiskey out of Stumptown Ales. Yeah, so it's really wonderful for me because I don't have to make the beer. I get to skip the whole mashing part of the process. And so what we do is we go up there with a big container, pick up the beer from them and bring it back down here and then pump it directly into our still. Now it does have challenges to it because well, the beer has carbonation in it and it also has a lot of extra proteins from the hops and the, the different way that they make their beer compared to what I'm usually distilling. And so it was somewhat of an experimentation process to figure out what kind of flavors are coming out, uh, learning not to overfill the still because of the carbonation, and then allowing extra time at the end for cleanup because it makes a huge mess in the still. Yeah, and I know typically a beer from a small small brewer is quite expensive, especially those big IPAs. How does the financial side of it work, dollars and cents, if you have to buy the beer? And what kind of quantities do you have to buy beer to make it worthwhile for you to run your still? So we started with small batch, special 
the I think the first batch that we ever had, we only had about a hundred bottles of the spirit when we were finished. And so we only used about a hundred gallons of the beer to start. And so I think they, they cut us a deal on uh, the beer to make it work. If you were trying to make it on a huge scale and have it out in liquor stores, I'm not sure how those margins would work for us being here and being able to sell it for, you know, $50, $60 for a bottle on a small scale. It works out. I know you were talking about uh, the beer that you get from a, a brewery having different ingredients than what you're used to in your main products, but just were you happy with the taste you got in the Stumptown whiskey originally? And, and, and is there things that you, the next batch, the second batch, you were going to do a little differently? Well, the thing about it is the hop oils are very volatile and they become concentrated. So all the hops and all the beer comes into that small amount of whiskey that you get. And right out of the still, when we tasted it, we weren't sure if it was going to be sellable because it was so powerful and overwhelming, uh, extremely hard to drink. Well, those Stumptown people put a lot of hops in their beer. They do, <laughs> yeah. And luckily, yeah, the hop heads are rabid out there. And in the end, it's a great marketing point for us because if somebody wants to drink a distilled IPA and they want to be able to actually taste those hops. But what really made it a great liquor, I think, is the barrel aging process. And so time in the barrel really mellowed out uh, that initial harshness of the over, I don't even want to say it's over hoppiness, but it was um, almost acrid. It's so strong that it was hard to taste anything. And with time in the barrel, it really mellowed out. And what we did is we put it in a third use barrel. So the barrel had been used for bourbon and then maple syrup and then maple whiskey. And so I got a little residual sweetness from that barrel, a little hint of the maple whiskey out of the barrel. And that helped add another dimension, a little sweetness and really mellowed out, complemented the hops. So you would get a nice malt whiskey at the front and then you would get that little hint of sweetness and then it would finish with a nice hoppiness at the end. And people seem to really enjoy it. Yeah, that uh, barrel aging is magic, isn't it? It sure is. <laughs> so you had about 100 bottles of it. Was it well-received and, and sold quickly at $55 each? It did, yeah. It sold out, I think, in about two weeks right at Christmas, the first batch that we released. That's pretty fast. And, and then you decided to do another whiskey project with Big Timber Brewing. How did that one get started? So the project with Big Timber... It came about, I believe, because they had some fermenters they wanted to free up that had beer in it. And so we were able to work out a deal with them, and we were able to get a fairly larger quantity than we had done with the Stumptown. And so we did almost 800 gallons of big timber over the one summer. The one we have on the shelf right now has actually been aged for two years because we were able to make so much of that. So you got so much more. How many bottles did you end up with that when it was all over? Well, this is our third batch that we've opened up, and we have about 250 bottles of this third batch. And then we have one more 50-gallon barrel of it that'll be two years old next summer that we'll release. And it's being received fairly well from your customers. It is. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, Big Timber one that you made from double-bit IPA, IPA, I understand, yeah. Yeah, the double bit IPA, it's, I'd say a little bit mellower flavor. It's not as 
high on the hop bill. Mm-hmm. And it turned out quite pleasant. I would say a little crisper would be my description of the flavor compared to the one that we did from Stumptown. The first couple batches of the Big Timber that we released were in the same barrel aging sequence after the maple whiskey. This two-year that one that we did, it is just in a used bourbon barrel, so a second use barrel. So you don't have the sweetness of the maple in there, but you have more of a heavy bourbon influence. Mm-hmm. I think that worked out. It worked out well too, but it's definitely a different flavor. But so it's, a different product then in the end. Yes. And that's the great thing about being very small, selling everything from here. We can explain all those nuances to our customers. And it's kind of like a collect them all type scenario where they like to taste the variation and get the new batch that might be slightly different. This next one that's coming out, it will be similar to the one we have now because it's in a used bourbon barrel as well. And so it's already being barrel aged. That event has already been set in motion. So I think it'll be pretty similar to number three. And... What's the plans then for more, uh, another batch of your craft beer-based whiskeys? Well, I need to contact Big Timber and Stumptown and get the next one rolling. Right now, it's been a little while since I distilled any of it. I think they've been busy with their projects, and I've certainly been busy here with mine. But it's definitely a collaboration that we would like to keep going and experiment with some different beers and different flavors moving forward. That Athey Lutz does a great job telling his side of the story. But after we heard the story from the distiller's side, it was fun to go back and get the brewer's reaction to the whiskey Athey made. Here again are Matt and Ashley Kwasniewski with Aaron and I. Either of you get a, a, a nice sample, I assume so. Yeah, he brought us some samples, and we really enjoyed it. We had a really good night with it. <laughs> good memories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I remember it was, like, really smooth, and I was really surprised that there was a hop quality to it because I always thought when you distilled something, you took the whole and broke it into individual parts, but it wasn't just alcohol that came through. There was some residual flavor from the beer, which was neat. Yeah, and he told us that he put that uh, his spirit through three different barrel mm-hmm. agings and three different styles of barrel. The first one was the bourbon barrel, the second one was a maple, maple syrup. syrup barrel, and, and then the third was the honey. Honey, yeah. So that first batch that he took from you, which he did divide this uh, spirit into, th- I think three or three four different or three, yeah. batches. Yeah, the third one's just out today or now, but uh, but anyway, yeah, it was interesting that he processed these batches different and uh, of course that first batch uh, he was very happy with but he also wanted to try it in different barrel combinations yeah are, are you likely to do it again do you think another I th- collaboration i think so it benefits our community it benefits us it benefits them there's mm-hmm. no reason to say no and also i look forward to seeing what different styles of beer couldn't turn it to I mean, not that I want a bunch of beer to go bad, but... Sure. Yeah, <laughs> ideally we wouldn't do it because yeah. we're not trying to make beer that we'd want to dump, but it happens, <laughs> so I'll make sure to hit them up whenever we do have that issue. So. Sure. Yeah, just be sure we work out a good trade of finished product back when... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I hope you were as intrigued and impressed 
with Athey Lutz and this story of his whiskey making from beer as Aaron and I were. And right after the conclusion of this interview, Aaron and I sampled the whiskey made from Big Timber's Double Bit IPA. And it was so delicious, very mellow and bright with a spiciness from the hop showing through. A pretty unique beverage it is, uh, like something I've never really tasted before. If you're a whiskey fan, we definitely recommend giving it a try. And on this next segment of West Virginia Beer Road's podcast today, we'll dig more into the Still Hollow Spirits backstory and just how they operate this farm distillery way back in the mountains of West Virginia. We were so impressed with what we found there. Athey Lutz has built a super cool tourist attraction that is unique and sometimes unusual. Uh, the products, though, are all well-made and very attractive. So we pick up the interview again with Aaron McCoy's next question for Athey. So how did Still Hollow Spirits get started? Still Hollow was a dream that we had talked about for years. Growing up in this area, moonshine was a part of life. And seeing how the tourist economy was thriving in the area with the ski areas and the state parks and people coming here for the natural beauty, realizing how those people wanted to learn about the moonshine and more than learn, they wanted to drink moonshine and find where to get it. We thought it'd be really amazing if we could open a legal place where people could come see it out in the open, learn how it's made and taste it, be able to barrel age it and have it out there as a tourist attraction to help with the local economy around here. So what year was that, your your original year of business operations? We finally opened up in 2015. We started our LLC and began applying for our permits and broke ground on our building in 2016. 2016. And, and so it's yourself, and who are your other business partners? So it's a family business. It's my wife, Maggie, and myself are the owners, and also... Two of the employees, and we have one other employee as well, Tony. So it sounded like you were very interested in doing something in the local community. And like you said, this is farm's been in the family. It's a family business. But did you not worry about the risk of trying to open a distillery that would require people to come to it, but you're way out in, in the rural area, the mountains of West Virginia? It seems like we're really in a rural location, but if you think about it, between Spruce Knob and Seneca Rocks and Blackwater Falls. Those are three of the five top most visited places in West Virginia, all within a half hour of our location here. So we like to claim we're conveniently a half hour from everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and I wasn't thinking of it quite like that, but right, that sounds like a smart business proposition if you're sort of centered among some very big tourist attractions. Absolutely. We were taken aback by how popular it's been given the drive to get here. We had originally thought we may have to do some distribution, but it's really been amazing the response. As they say, if you build it, they will come, and that has (laughs) certainly been the case here. Well, how have your original business ideas evolved over the years? One of the main things that we've been blessed with has been the collaboration with our neighboring businesses. And a lot of our most popular products have really been driven by conversations with our neighbors, ideas from our neighbors, and being able to incorporate their products. 
So when we first got started, we were very much thinking about what you see on the liquor store shelf, your bourbons, your aged whiskeys, those traditional categories. But through the collaborations with our friends that do the maple syrup, the honey, the local breweries, we've really been able to add some unique products that have helped our business grow. How much of your input grains and fruits do you actually grow here on the farm? We grow approximately 25% of the corn that we use for our distilling. And then we grow a large portion of our gin herbs here on the farm. So regarding the grains that you have that you grow here on the farm, can you talk about that in a little more detail? Yes, we were very blessed to find a true West Virginia heirloom corn for us to use in our distillation. It's called Bloody Butcher Corn, which is a fairly common heirloom throughout the Appalachian Range. We found a particular seed that had been saved in the same family for over 200 years. The Meadows family in Nicholas County gave us permission to start growing this seed. They also provide us with about a batch worth of seed a year to distill. And so this is a seed that NPR has done several interviews and articles about the particular seed being saved by the meadows and it has a great flavor for it's been used for years for distilling also as a staple food cornbread and grits throughout the year and so we're very proud that we were able to find that because it fit in exactly with what we were trying to do with the traditional west virginia product spring water and west virginia heirloom corn well, Athey, let's talk about your regular product lineup now, the ones that you try to make and have here at the distillery available most of the time. Yeah, so corn whiskey is our focus. That's the main thing that we distill. And we offer it in a clear form, which is like your traditional moonshine, where it comes out of the still crystal clear. It has a really corn-forward flavor to it, and that's our base product. You can usually tell who grew up drinking a little moonshine, whether they enjoy that clear liquor or whether they gravitate toward the aged product, the bourbon. So if you take that corn whiskey and you put it in a brand new charred white oak barrel, it turns into bourbon, which is very popular right now, exploding in popularity for the past few years. And so what happens when you age that in the charred oak barrel is you replace that corn forward moonshine flavor with the vanilla and charred oak notes of the barrel. And how long does that take you here in, in reality? What, what kind of time do you have to age that in your barrels? So when we first started, we've distilled all our own liquor here. And so we used five gallon barrels aging the bourbon for six months when we first started. Then we're aging in 10 gallon barrels for a year. And we're just getting into now opening some of our first ever two-year-old straight bourbon whiskey, which will be aged in a two-gallon gal- or 20-gallon barrel, I'm sorry. So the smaller the barrel, the quicker it'll get that char flavor. The longer you want to age, you start going into bigger barrels. Yeah, I think a lot of people from my experience think that maybe bourbon requires a lot longer aging. You know, They think, well, it's got to be at least four years or it's not good bourbon or maybe six years. And you know what you see in the market now, at least from the ones that get a lot of publicity and all the mainline brands. But I think a lot of people don't realize that those are in full size, what, 60 gallon, however big those barrels are. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah those are usually 53 gallon barrels. And what you get a lot of times is people want to use age to cover up the harshness of liquor, whereas we try to make a very smooth corn whiskey going into the barrel. 
So we're relying more on the barrel aging time to add flavoring and that bourbon flavor, not to make the product smooth. So you've chosen to make your bourbons out of 100% corn, uh, but we see so many popular bourbons today that have mixtures of grains. Certainly they add the wheats or the rye. Uh, some have a little malt in them and things. So what gave you the idea to, to make 100% uh, your grain mixture like you do? Ours is unique because it is 100% corn. As you mentioned, most bourbons have a percentage of malt or rye or wheat in there. The weeded bourbons are pretty popular. We like the sweetness and the mellow flavor of the corn and wanted to do something unique with it. I also think it's special to be able to taste the 100% corn whiskey clear and then taste the bourbon. And it's the same base product and you're able to just see how that time in the barrel changes the flavor. So how many gallons, uh, what's your goal for how many gallons you want to produce of uh, your corn whiskey that you're using in different products? So we aim for about 2,000 gallons a year to produce. And we've been trying to produce almost double what we need in a year as we get started so that we have more and more barrels put away for longer aging and future releases. And I guess uh, customers, from what I'm hearing you say, won't find any whiskey or distilled spirits products here in your place that you didn't actually make right here on premises. That's correct. Yeah, we pride ourselves on making everything from scratch here from the production through the bottling, barrel aging, and selling it here on site. It's quite popular in the distilling world to purchase pre-aged whiskey from other distilleries and relabel it under your name. I understand why people do that, but everything that we sell here is made on site. What would you say, or in your opinion, having gone through this process, what is the key to making a small farm distillery a positive business? I think the most important thing is to do your research before you jump into it, to not underestimate the amount of work that it's going to take to try to balance the farm and the distillery at the same time, and to try to reach out to experts in the various fields that you'll need to make it succeed. Don't be afraid to ask for help and have some good help to get you through the process. Well, as far as your product goes and, and customers, if they want to purchase your product, they have to do so only here. You're not actually out in liquor stores at this time, correct? That's correct. You have to come here to the hollow, see where it's made, talk to one of us, or as we tell people when they're leaving, they say, well, you can't ship it to us. Where can we get it? We tell them, make a friend when you're here and they can buy a bottle and ship it to you. <laughs> there you go. Are you overall happy with the sales that you've been able to generate? Yes, we really have. We were anticipating when we first drew up our business plan that distribution would certainly have to be a good percentage of our sales, but the on-site sales have exceeded our expectations so much that we have not gone into distribution yet and have been able to just rely on the sales that we're receiving on-site. And I think for listeners that don't quite understand the West Virginia liquor laws and the, the way it's required to be sold in the state, uh, a lot of times if a brewery has its own tap room, they're going to make a lot of markup on the beer they sell, and they're going to make good money on that beer from their own tap room, probably the highest profit that they'll make. But when it comes to 
a distillery, you pretty much have to sell your product at the same price the state sets for that. Isn't that true? I mean, whether it's sold at a liquor store or here. It's unfortunate. We we cannot operate as a bar or a tap room here. We can't sell drinks. So yeah, we're not able to market up at the highest level, which would be you know, direct to consumer over the bar on a per drink basis. As you say, the, the breweries are able to do and it, is really nice for them because they can experiment with small stuff and then just sell it direct from their tap room and not distribute it. The state, for whatever reason, clings very tightly to the old liquor laws that never really relaxed that much after prohibition. I'm not sure uh, what the hang up on it is that we can't you know, operate uh, with a little more freedom, but we basically would have to ship pallets of our product down to a warehouse in Charleston. And then they would be sent through a middleman back up to a bar five miles up the road um, in order for us to even be in a local bar. And in that process, you know, somebody's going to take an extra 28% um, of the price. So that's a huge percent of your margin, mm-hmm. you know, 28% of the total sales price. And so it really makes it, it hard for the small distilleries to get out there in the market we're trying to get together and lobby for some changes to that. So all you craft beverage enthusiasts out there, keep an eye on the legislation. And if you can, you know, nudge your uh, legislators to support those efforts. And I know you're under the mini distillery category, and that's a special category of, of distilleries that talk about how doesn't that require you to pr- produce or grow some of your own input uh, ingredients? Yeah, so the mini distillery license, you get a reduced license fee. You have a limit on the total gallons of liquor that you can produce every year. You have to grow at least 25% of your raw agricultural product on your property. And then there's also a certain percentage of your agricultural product that you need to source from within West Virginia. Which you discussed, you guys do a great job of doing that. So that that fits well for your business model. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. What about future plans? Well, right now we are trying to get older whiskey products out because it seems like that's where the demand is, is for your your older bourbons, older whiskeys. Our next big project would probably be a barn to house whiskey barrels, our rickhouse on site to be able to step up our barrel aging program. And continuing with our collaborations with with local business, hoping to do more events here on site. We offer some outdoor events in the future to help bring people down to the distillery. But still on-site sales, not looking for any kind of distribution in the near future? Unless something drastically changes within the West Virginia distribution system, I don't see us distributing in West Virginia in the near future. This brings us to the close of another podcast. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast host. Thank you for listening to West Virginia Beer Roads. West Virginia Beer Roads is a production of BrilliantStream.com.